0: Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Micro Moment, the show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm your host, Tess.
1: And I'm John.
0: And I'm Julie. And we are still in our season of bioterrorism, particularly looking at the time after DNA has been discovered, but before modern times. Particularly, I think we're talking Cold War time. Uh, I will be talking quite a bit about some Russian biological weapons. And then I have a little add on bonus story from one of our previous stories from World War II. So if you haven't listened to that episode, go ahead, go back, listen to it. It is super interesting. I actually, listen to both of them because I actually have a callback to both of those episodes because everything
2: is so related. And we also have a story. And Julie, what's your story about? Uh, my story is about a crazy man who had a terrifying cult in Japan. And also had followers in America and Russia.
0: Oh, cool. So we will be hanging out in Russia and Japan for this episode.
1: Mm, Another crazy cult.
0: Another crazy cult. Amazing that there are so many cults that use bioterrorism. I mean, two, I guess, is not a lot, but...
1: Yeah, like, I don't know if there's more than two. We just didn't get to the others.
0: Yeah, maybe. Maybe. All right. So because this is such a hefty episode where we have about four different stories, we are just going to go ahead and get started. If you're looking for a little bit of science achievement, societal culture norms during this time, I believe we covered that in the last episode where we talked specifically about another cult.
1: The Rajnichi cult.
0: So if you'd like to listen to that and learn more about that, that was the salmonella salad fiasco. Mm. Was that the 1990s? 1980s. 1980s.
1: Mmm, salmonella salad.
2: I think we're coming up with a theme. Don't join cults. Don't join cults. Good PSA. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. So for my stuff, I've been reading a number of books. I've been watching a lot of documentaries. I'm reading a lot of blog posts and a couple scientific papers. I've really been down in the rabbit hole for this. So I have tried my very best to condense this down into something That will not make your ears bleed, but uh, we'll see how this goes. So as usual, my sources for this comes from Chris Holmes' book, Spores, Plagues, and History, the National Security Archive article on anthrax, and the Science Org's article on anthrax genome reveals secrets about Soviet bioweapons accidents. We also have Ken Alabeck's book called Biohazard, The Chilling True Story of the Largest Covert Biological Weapons Program in the World, told from the inside by the man who ran it, which is just so fascinating. 10 out of 10 recommend for so many different reasons. So if you can go to your library and pick that up, I would highly suggest it.
1: So where are we starting in your story?
0: So I'd actually like to read a little bit of ken alabek's book when he talks about pulmonary anthrax um ken alabek did a lot more than just anthrax but you know me in this series it's uh a lot of anthrax all the time
1: i mean it's been almost exclusively anthrax with
0: i did a couple other things
1: uh, mostly I anthrax 95
0: percent anthrax very true Pulmonary anthrax can be treated with antibiotics, but it would take highly alert public health system to recognize the evidence of an anthrax attack. Few physicians are trained to identify the disease, and an unremarkable nature of early symptoms make an accurate diagnosis difficult." The first symptoms are followed several days later by the anthrax eclipse, a period in which the initial discomfort seems to fade, concealing the approaching danger. Proliferating bacteria will have begun to engulf the lymph nodes, local headquarters of the body's disease protection system. Within a matter of hours, the bacteria will have taken over the entire lymphatic system. From there, they enter the bloodstream, continuing to multiply at a furious pace. Soon, they begin to release a toxin that attacks all organs, but is particularly damaging to the lungs, filling them with liquid and gradually cutting off their supply of oxygen. Within 24 hours of this toxin's release, a victim's skin will begin to turn a faint bluish color. At this stage, every breath becomes more painful than the last. A choking fit and convulsions follow. The end usually comes suddenly. Some victims of pulmonary anthrax have been th- known to die in the middle of a conversation. The disease is fatal in over 90% of untreated cases. A hundred kilograms of anthrax spores would, in optimal atmospheric conditions, kill up to three million people in any of the densely populated metropolitan areas of the United States. A single SS 18 could wipe out the population of a city as large as New York. Terrifying, huh? How's that for spooky season?
1: Man, I remember when past year and Coke, we were doing the research for them. And Coke's description of anthrax in the blood is just—it's very similar to what you were saying. Like, I think the he said the blood was like kind of black, and it was it was completely, utterly dense with anthrax cells.
0: Mm-hmm, it's a really terrifying disease I've come to find out over the past 10 weeks or so. Yeah. I mean, I knew it was terrifying before, but now I have a lot more details of how it's terrifying, and so does everyone listening to this podcast. You're welcome. So I'm going to start with the story of compound 19, the biological Chernobyl. Have you guys ever heard of this story? I never did. No. All right. This is wild. So wild. Okay, so we're going to talk about the biological Chernobyl, which happened at Sverdlovsk. I might pronounce that incorrectly later in the future, and I probably did then, but I really tried. This occurred on April 2nd, 1979, or some people say maybe two or three days earlier. No one's really sure. But a plume of dust shot up into the sky in the desolate area of Russia. Few took notice, but the winds quickly blew the dust southeast, making it vanish from the site with the whipping winds but leaving in its wake 50 kilometers of diseased-laced air. Within 48 hours, veterinarians were being called to local farms. The livestock were acting peculiar. Some even died. Within four days, someone was admitted to the hospital. The cause was unknown, but the symptoms were developing fast, and doctors struggled to find a remedy to reverse or, at the very least, stop the man from rapidly dying right before their eyes. When the man came in he was suffering from severe fever and chills he'd have these drenching sweats and wicked cough he soon developed a discomfort in his chest nausea he had stomach pains as the disease progressed his symptoms took a turn for the worse confusion dizziness shortness of breath vomiting and constant headache the man suffered greatly but the doctors did not know what was ailing the man five others would soon join him at the hospital some rapidly developing symptoms, no diagnosis, no cure in sight. For a week, the doctors and nurses would conduct tests, run courses of antibiotics, attempt in any way they could to save these workers, but all they could do was mitigate the pain. All five workers would die within a week. The hospitals had no idea what they were looking at. Meanwhile, the veterinarians down the road, they knew exactly what was wrong with the livestock, but they couldn't even fathom the nefarious source of what they believed to be a mild anthrax epidemic. The animals might have stood a chance with this diagnosis, but the workers were doomed from the start.
1: So when when did this occur?
0: April 2nd, 1979, plus or minus a few days depending on who, which sources you're quoting.
1: <laughs> That's right. So why couldn't they treat them with antibiotics? It was too late at that point?
0: So they tried to treat them with antibiotics, but yeah, inhalation, anthrax, well, I have a little bit. So inhalation, anthrax, if you get it at the very beginning with antibiotics, you can be okay. If by the time you develop symptoms, the toxin has been released Mm. and antibiotics will kill the bacteria, it won't degrade the toxin. And the toxin is what kills you, not the bacteria. Okay. So by the time they all showed up to the hospital and they tried so many other things and then put them on antibiotics, it was kind of too late.
1: Yeah, because they had plenty of toxin in their body at that point. Yeah. Okay.
0: 11 more cases would soon come into the hospital, and one poor straggler victim would be reported on May 18th, some six weeks after the attack. The city this biological attack happened in was Sverdvåsk, a.k.a. Yekaterinburg, in. Kazakhstan.
1: I think that's right. Kazakhstan?
0: Kazakhstan. A country that sits on the border between what is Europe and what is Asia. But who was the mastermind behind this attack?
1: Mm, I have no idea.
0: Well, it was actually no one, at least not on purpose. Compound 19 was owned and operated by the Soviet Union, and after a year in much public and political scrutiny, the Soviet government released a statement of what happened. Their statement in 1980 was, it was a natural outbreak of anthrax among domestic animals. They blamed it on contaminated meat and unauthorized vendors, going so far as rounding up a hundred or so dogs near these vendors and killing them to convince the public they presented a threat to spreading the disease but this story would soon unravel. To even say it was a local epidemic among local cattle sheep farmers was a stretch. Often when this happens and the spores get passed along to farmers is generally through a cut or a small break in the skin. This causes cutaneous form of anthrax. It is often not deadly, but is well known amongst farming populations. In fact, in Russia, they call it the Siberian ulcer, according to Ken Alabak, who we'll get to later. This form is not as deadly as the other two forms of anthrax and can be easily cured with a bit of penicillin. If you contract the disease through eating contaminated meat, as the Soviet Union was trying to say as part of their cover-up, you get a different form of the disease called gastrointestinal anthrax. This doesn't have a considerably great survival rate. It's slightly higher than inhalation anthrax at 60%, according to the CDC. So for the Soviets to come up with this story, the fatalities would make sense. But this is by far the rarest of the three forms of anthrax. And this outbreak affected predominantly males, male workers in local factories who were working overnight when the spores were exposed, and not women and children who would think would also be eating the contaminated meat.
1: Right. But they're safe at home when this occurred.
0: Yes. However, if you inhale bacillus anthracis spores... That's a completely different story. When the spores enter the body, they germinate, they multiply, and then the deadly thing happens, as we were previously talking about. They produce the toxins, which cripple your white blood cells from fighting off the disease. Antibiotics early before the toxin, they might you might survive. But antibiotics after the toxin, well, not so good.
1: Once it's there, it's already there.
0: Yes. Once this released to the West, this was enough evidence to declare the Soviets were in direct violation of the 1972 Biological Weapons Convention. But you, my dear listener, also know it's grotesquely hypocritical for the U.S. to point fingers at the Soviets for this violation.
1: For whatever do you mean?
0: (laughs) What? Everyone was doing research. Compound 19, and this is where we get our call back to World War II Part One. Compound 19 was built in 1946 off of a Japanese blueprint.
1: Hmm. What?
0: Unit 731,
1: anyone? Mm, nice callback there. Well, maybe not nice, but you know what I'm saying.
0: At the height, they were producing anthrax by the ton. Like,
1: ton. Unit 731 or Soviet Union?
0: Soviet Union. Yeah,
1: that's a lot.
0: Do we know where all that is now? um we probably don't want to know that it probably still exists
1: okay never mind i bet you they probably lost count of it Mm. especially when the soviet union collapsed
0: Mm. well this guy i think goes through the soviet union when the soviet union collapse 1980s
1: yeah Mm. yeah late 80s i believe
0: Mm. okay i'm not there yet reagan and I think we've talked about this before. So I just said the anthrax uh, was created by the ton. And we've talked about before what a small amount of bacillus anthracis spores you actually need to infect a large amount of people. As a refresher, infection can occur in as little as 5,000 spores. 5,000 seems like a pretty big number, but we're talking at the microscopic level. A pinch of anthrax spores is about A million spores. So 5,000, not that much. And this pinch could infect up to 200 people. So when I say they're creating anthrax by the ton, this is nearly a world-ending amount of anthrax.
1: Yeah, what's the point?
0: What was the point of building nukes so that we could destroy the Earth 17,000 times over?
1: I guess like mutually assured destruction, but this is like way past overkill.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's the Cold War. It's all an arms race.
1: I'm a lover, not a fighter, so I can't really understand it.
0: Yeah, I mean, we don't understand it, but it happened. The Soviets were well aware of the dangers of anthrax, but were in a heated arms race against the Americans, a diabolical and most dangerous peeing contest any man has ever committed with each other. And on either side, the creation of world-ending bioterrorist agents or copious amounts of atomic bombs were the drivers behind which nation was the bigger, most powerful, and honestly most sinister country in the world. Anyways, the Soviets knew the dangers this might lead to and their own people, so they took precautions. At Compound 19, massive filters were placed on all the buildings to trap in anthrax spores and other dust particles. Due to the nature of the work, which is also quite alarming, dust and anthrax spores would constantly clog the vent. Which to me seems like all the workers, which were there in all three round the clock shifts, were amongst anthrax spores the whole time they were working.
1: So what was the life expectancy at these facilities?
0: I'm not sure. Ken Allabek did talk about the number of times they had to have vaccines and all the antibiotics they had, and he attributes this to a number of health issues that he now has because of the number of times that his immune system had been challenged. Damn. Yeah. On this particular fateful night of April 2nd, 1979, plus or minus a few days, depending on which sources you're looking at, the filter checker went about his normal routine. One filter was in clear need of a cleaning. He marked it down, turned off the machinery associated with the event, and removed the dirty filter. He scrawled a quick note to a supervisor before leaving from home. Filter clog, so I removed it. Replacement necessary, he wrote. His shift had ended, and he was eager to go home as was the supervisor who never-end added the note to the logbook. As the next shift came in, the supervisor went through the logbook, found nothing of concern, and started up all the machines. Oops.
1: And all the spores came flying out.
0: Indeed. For several hours, the spores would be shooting out of the facility, releasing a deadly pathogen into the surrounding environments. Probably embarrassed or ashamed at this mishap, no one told anyone. Even after the hole was fixed and a new filter was on, no one thought to tell hospitals that maybe some people might come in with some anthrax-like symptoms and you should probably look out for what is typically rare inhalation anthrax symptoms among patients. Had that been done, perhaps the workers of the nearby factory who died would have survived. I mean, that's not even to mention the cover-up that they did to the world, but this is their own people. Right. For years, the Soviet government tried to brush this whole fiasco under the table, blaming it on tainted meat from the animal outbreak. Tainted meat that was sold illegally on black market, therefore the government was not at fault. Due to this long, twisted stories of lies that would last some 12 years added on by the secrecy and aggressive between Russian and the U.S. in the Cold War, it is hard to say how far this epidemic spread. The Sverdlovsk Hospital claims this incident was the root cause of 358 cases and 45 deaths, Others say there are only 110 cases. Ingles Bay and colleagues wrote a paper in 2002 in the Journal of American Medical Associations that claimed there were upwards of 250 cases with 100 deaths. The Science.org article said 66 people died as a result of the outbreak. Either way, it's much too many lives impacted over a governmental peeing contest.
1: We may never know the exact number either.
0: Yeah, and I also think it's interesting as we move further and further to modern times, we're less and less sure of the information that we have. Yeah. Interesting.
1: <laughs> Shredding those papers.
0: hmm And with secrets often comes conspiracies. There were murmurs that rippled through the world that this strain was no ordinary strain of anthrax. People speculated that the Soviet scientists had genetically modified the strain to be more resistant to antibiotics, and this was the root cause of antibiotic resistance we see rampant across the world today. Believe it? Hmm.
1: I can see that being a contributor, but I would not say that's the sole cause of antibiotic resistance in anthrax.
0: I would say you're right. The horrifying reality of our not-too-distant future, microbial antibiotic resistance, is a shared tragedy rooted in past triumphs. In fact, in 2016, Jason W. Saul and colleagues at the Northern Arizona University sequenced bacillus anthracis that was extracted from two of the victims of this anthrax outbreak. After some comparative genomics analysis comparing these strains to other strains sequenced from across the world, the researchers did not find any evidence of genetic manipulation of engineering of these strains now i don't know if that's just whether or not it was spliced with other genes or if they didn't find any source of adaptive evolution i'm not entirely sure they didn't go into too much detail there
1: did they also look for plasmid dna too
0: yeah I, th- I mean i think they sequenced the whole genome so they would have gathered plasmid dna in the same assembly okay And that is the story of the biological Chernobyl. While it did not take as many lives as the explosion at Chernobyl, it was a beacon to the world, a warning, if you will, of the dangers of creating and using biological weapons. But this warning was not enough to stop the anthrax work. They simply moved it to a new location. And one of its first directors was Ken Alabak, and his task, in his words, was to create the world's most efficient assembly line for the mass production of weaponized anthrax.
1: Thum thum
0: thum. And we'll come back. We will return to the story of Ken Alley back after these short messages. So, Julia, you want to tell us a little bit about your story?
2: Sure. I'm going to set the scene for you. It is... March 20th, 1995, it's morning rush hour in Tokyo, and you're on one of the world's busiest underground systems. You sit down and your eyes start to water, and you notice a bag sitting a little away from you, and its contents are leaking. Mm. Seconds later, you and everyone around you are choking and vomiting. Wow, that sounds terrible. Yes, this does not sound like a good start to your day.
0: Way worse than being on a train with a durian.
1: Yes. Oh.
0: That would also
2: make your eyes water. I thought that's where the story was going. <laughs> no. Durian
0: fruit. So much more sinister.
2: Yes. This particular incident killed 13 people. Wow. And at least 5,800 were injured. And that this was uh, five coordinated attacks on three different train lines. All in the same day? Yep. Wow. So it turns out that this was not necessarily a biological attack. This attack was from sarin gas, uh, which is more of a chemical than a biological agent. And it turns out that this crazy, obscure religious group based in Japan, which had followers in... The United States and Germany and Russia, um, and at the height of its popularity, I guess had about ten thousand in around nineteen ninety five, which is when this was. This was pretty much the members were captured after this, and the founder uh, Shoko Asahara were actually executed for their role in that attack.
0: Wait, I have a question. Sure. Okay. Honestly, how do people find obscure cults all over the world before the internet?
2: Well, he started in the mid-80s as a yoga studio, and it kind of grew from there. So uh, Shoko Asahara grew up poor. He was partially blind, uh, but he was a crafty little devil, I would say. And you know, he manipulated people from a very young age. It was just one of those people that you hear about that can convince people to do things like drink his blood and drink tea that has been formed by steeping his hair in hot water. Yeah. Hate that. But
0: manipulation, super good for cult leaders and politicians.
2: Yeah. So I think, you know, there are just people who are, dissatisfied with their lives and disillusioned with life. And so they look for these. I don't know. I guess he must have had some enigmatic qualities that made people want to be near him because he sure got them to do a lot of crazy things. Although he was also, you know, it started out as a yoga studio and they started with Buddhism and Hinduism. And then as time grew on, uh, they started pulling in some of the uh, more violent Christian beliefs into their package, I guess you will. And um, things started to get more and more violent.
1: In their portfolio.
2: Yeah. But as time went by, things grew more and more violent. And he predicted that, you know, he was one of the ones that was, you know, in the year 2000, there's going to be a nuclear catastrophic war and the only people that are going to live are my followers and so so he was an extreme y 2 Ker.
0: yeah is that what y2k was uh yeah the clocks weren't gonna change and everyone thought the world
2: was gonna die yeah yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. literally doesn't make any sense i remember the day wasn't we were alive during that and uh you know i wasn't too frightened but i thought the worst that was going to happen is we would have some issues with clocks or something but So, he convinced his uh, followers that this was, you know, that they should be doing what he said. I mean, they were drinking his blood. They were crazy. Also, how do you get 10,000 people to drink your blood and still live? I uh, I don't know. The whole thing of this, you know, is a very secretive cult. They now find out about what has happened from his followers that are now in prison. So... Um, Him and some of his big ringleaders are gone now because they were executed. But there are still people that are prison that are now shedding light on what it was that actually happened. And the Sarin attacks were in 1995. And they were actually almost the result of some frustration of their attempts to use biological weapons, which were unsuccessful. So, he you know, at first, I think probably pulling people in with, you know, peace, love and happiness, and we're all going to survive together. And then he became more and more violent. And it started to be that people in the cult were murdered if they were not in line. And there was a lawyer who was representing some families who were trying to get their, their loved ones out of the cult. And so, he asked, Asahara asked his disciples, what is the most potent poison that we could use in our efforts to get rid of our enemies? And one of his disciples replied, "Botulinum."
0: That's one we haven't talked about yet on the podcast. No, yeah, it was an
1: effective.
2: Poison. Oh no, we did. We I remember saying Botox at some point. <laughs> well, it's. Kind of a good news, bad news scenario of what the cult did here. So one of the things that he tried to do early on was to have his followers run for political office. Um, And so he had like somewhere to the tune of, you know, around 30 people run for office. Nobody won their elections. And so apparently the next step from there was bioterrorism.
0: Oh, okay. I was going to say, wow, good they're not in office but like maybe it would have been better yeah
1: i mean that sounds like a natural progression to me
2: yeah right yeah
0: really you You lose a race bioterrorism
2: you know he was one of those people that is a megalomaniac so that was really humiliating that his uh, followers were not elected and so he said why don't we go ahead and try and get some of this botulinum toxin but They were smart enough to know. And now this is pretty modern times, right? Like this is a little before Google and stuff, but they feared going through like, I'm using air quotes here, normal channels to obtain a virulent strain of botulinum. And so they decided they couldn't order it or steal it from a state source and they ended up deciding that they could dig it out of the ground and find it in the soil. And, you know, they had a medical doctor who wasn't much help in this. They had a member who had gone to undergrad for, you know, some microbiology and then ended up in virology, um, but was not a microbiologist. So, you know, they got the soil. They tried to cultivate the material in some homemade fermenters. There are stories of people falling into these vats of yellow liquid and almost drowning, but they still didn't get sick. Uh, So they tested the liquid on mice. None of the mice got sick, but they decided to disseminate it anyway.
1: Because what the hell? Why not?
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they've already gone through all this effort. So they got some trucks and they went ahead and fitted them with like these crude homemade spray devices and they sprayed it around two Navy bases, US naval bases, uh the Narita Airport, the Imperial Palace, and headquarters of a rival religious group. And no one was affected. But surprise, surprise, it didn't
0: work since once they tested it, it didn't work.
1: I mean they fell into the vet and they didn't it didn't work. So.
0: Just spraying it doesn't make it magically work now.
2: Yeah.
1: It doesn't surprise me they couldn't get it from, probably there would be the Japanese Consortium of Microbiology. Because at that time, the Rajnichi cult got their hands on microbes. And all of the companies or the programs that had stocks of microbes kind of revamped. And they're like, we need to vet who were giving these microbes to?
0: Mm, mm-hmm, Especially when they found out that ATCC gave Saddam Hussein some microbes.
1: Oh, what?
0: Yeah, no. I don't know. I read that there was a couple different takes on that. It wasn't like directly to him. It was like a university.
1: Then the university like was kind of like the middleman.
0: Yeah, situation I think it was something like that. But, you know, there's lots of secrecy around
2: all this stuff. Yeah. Well, I thought that the this article that I read was from the NTI analysis of this cult. And I don't know if it's comforting that they were unable to... And no one's really sure exactly why it didn't work, because they could have started out with not enough of a virulent strain, because what you dig up in the soil, it could be thousands of strains of uh, botulinum you know, microbes, but not all of them are going to be something that is a deadly strain of it. So, they didn't have enough is one thought. The next is that, you know, they weren't able to completely use uh, their anaerobic, you know, fermenters to process enough. And then, of course, their method of dissemination was also not great. So, no one's exactly sure why it didn't work, but Luckily, it did not work, but they did not give up. Um, they decided, you know, once that didn't work, uh, they were going to move on to guess what? What? They tried another biological agent. Anthrax. Anthrax. Yes. Nailed it. Yeah. So this time uh, they did have a follower who used to work at a university and it was a an agricultural and veterinary medical university. And they had a substantial anthrax collection at the university, which I know you guys, like I'm not a scientist, not a microbiologist. The fact that there are universities and state, which means government agencies that have stockpiles of all these various microbes is terrifying. Oh, just wait till we get to Amerithrax.
1: (sighs) Oh, yeah. I mean... Well, what was it? Uh, one of the some I forget where it was, but someone was cleaning out a freezer and they found uh, a stock of smallpox yeah. that no one knew it was in the freezer, but it was there.
2: Oh, jeez!
1: I would have shit myself in fear <laughs> if I. Why
2: saw it was it. in a closed container?
1: Theoretically, yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, you don't know what crazy person put that away. They might not have tightened the lid all the way. We don't know
1: has hmm. been neglected for decades
0: yeah that wasn't that long ago right a couple of years ago a couple
1: of years ago yeah five
0: years ago something i don't know there's still only pre-pandemic and post-pandemic <laughs> <in> my timeline <laughs> still haven't washed that away that was
2: a pre-pandemic thing
1: it sure was
2: so anyway one of the followers had, you know, some access, not really, because they weren't really there anymore, but they got their hands on stern and pasture vaccine strains of B anthracis. So they're not exactly sure what happened here. But so these were uh, vaccine strains. So they weren't virulent strains, they weren't, they could they weren't going to kill somebody. However, the group thought that what they could do they planned to use and i'm using air quotes again genetic engineering to convert it to a more lethal form
0: oh yeah what was their genetic engineering form from a cult in 1995
2: apparently the russians were fooling around with this in 1989 so they thought that they sure were they were so they thought that they might be able to use that paper To genetically engineer these vaccine strains into something lethal. In 1993, they began to attempt to mass produce anthrax without understanding if they had a pathogenic strain or not.
0: The ego on these guys.
2: They thought they were going to do it.
1: Also, they had like a lot of money, didn't they? Like they have these. Big bioreactors, like
0: bioreactors and fermenters, big enough to drown someone.
1: Yeah, this is this is a big like endeavor.
2: Yeah, they spent somewhere the tune thirty million dollars on their. Oh my god! So, is that good news that a crazy cult? could spend that much money and still not have a successful bioterrorism attack. Well, I mean, they were successful, right? They killed 13 people
0: and 5,800 people got sick. Well, I guess it wasn't bioterrorism.
2: Yeah, they had to switch to chemical. They couldn't figure out the bio stuff. So it's kind of interesting. But they ended up creating 10 to 20 metric tons of this liquid slurry.
0: 10 to 20 metric tons?
2: Yes. From a little cult in Japan? Uh Uh-huh. That's a lot. So again, they didn't confirm that it was actually pathogenic. They also didn't purify anything, but they used a homemade sprayer and took it up onto the roof of one of their cult buildings in a residential neighborhood and sprayed it around. Also, used the truck method again to spread it around. The only thing they ended up killing was some birds and neighborhood pets, and the neighbors complained that it did not smell good and that there was this gelatinous substance all over the place near the building.
1: That's gross.
2: So the police came, gathered samples, but they were not tested until after the 1995 Sarin subway attacks.
0: There's so much irresponsibility in this whole
2: story. It's it's almost a little bit of a comedy of errors. It would be funny if it wasn't so darn scary.
1: Remind me, the past year strain, wasn't that like inactivated because they heat inactivated anthrax, which destroyed the plasmid that had the pathogenicity in it?
0: 85% sure that is correct. Cool. I'm also 100% sure I said the correct thing in a previous podcast. I think
2: that's what you said. I think that's what I said.
1: So yeah, there's like no way that they're going to infect people with this.
2: Mm -hmm. So, besides using this homemade spray nozzle, which probably would not have aerosolized the stuff enough, but they also did it during the day, which means that once it was sprayed out and hit the air, that it was also going to be exposed to UV radiation, thermal updrafts would reduce the concentration at ground level. So, basically... Unfortunately, they killed some birds and some pets, but they still did not kill any people. Unfortunately, that led to our megalomaniac leader to go ahead and switch over to chemical attacks where they were probably not as successful as they wanted to be, but still killed 13 people and injured 5,800 on their sarin attacks in the, in the Tokyo subways.
0: I feel like this guy had so much opportunity to think about what he was doing and he was just so determined to kill people like that. I don't know. That's just wild to me. Like you get really angry and you're like, I want to do something about it. Fine. But he's had so much time to be like, well, do I really want to do this? And he's like, yep, let's do it again. Do I really want to do it? Yep. Let's do it again. Like no morals, no ethics, no like little angel on his shoulder being like, "Mm, maybe we shouldn't kill a bunch of innocent people it's not cool
1: we went through a true crime phase and like a lot of the cult leaders they seem to like be somewhat normal and then they kind of just go off the rails power power god complex whatever Mm -hmm. like it's all all of a sudden they become irrational and it keeps escalating Mm.
2: so yeah that is my story about kind of a Failed bioterrorism that led to a chemical attack, but still, I think, a really interesting story.
1: So, yeah, you said that they sprayed these and then they were executed. Like, how long did it take for them to, like, capture or figure out that this gold was responsible?
2: And how did they execute them? You know, I did not read that. But, like, 95 is not that long ago. And I I guess I do remember, I do remember some of the news because, I, I don't know, I was... I don't know, in my 20s when that happened. You know, I remember the Sarin attacks, but I don't remember anyone ever talking about this other, which I think was discovered later. And like I said, a lot of the information that has come out has been from, you know, people who are in jail and some somewhat firsthand accounts, but like the big leaders are gone. So I don't think we'll ever, you know, get the full story, but I don't know, like, I don't remember ever, anybody ever talking about, a biological component of those attacks when it happened what was it 2001 when you first heard about biological attacks i don't i don't even remember maybe i don't remember ever hearing about it on the news yeah not even in the 80s i know i mean i was in high school and college no nobody was talking about that stuff we didn't Oh, the world was bigger and we knew less a lot less and happier, we may have been happier. <laughs> I think that ignorance is bliss is so true. Yeah,
1: I think I remember this cult actually. I think one of the issues is the people that they had on staff was a virologist, not a bacteriologist.
2: Very different world. Very different. Yeah, so he didn't know how to handle the microbes. He didn't know how to purify it. He didn't know how to you know manipulate it or to to grow it. Uh, so yeah. Should we talk about someone who does? Yes.
0: Well, that conversation's gonna be for the next episode. There's a little cliffhanger for you. So, Microbial Nation, we hope you enjoyed the latest episode of bioterrorism. We have one, maybe two, perhaps three, if you're lucky, more episodes on bioterrorism where we will turn to two stories next time of things that we've previously talked about. Both Ken Alleyback, he's gonna come back again get it Uh, and we will also talk about dark harvest which brings us back into europe it's going to be a very interesting very exciting episode and we hope you join us for that
1: so until next time microbial nation feed your microbes
0: feed your guts
1: make your microbes love you lots Bye. bye